0: Alright, this is our 22nd study on faith based on the teachings of Hebrews 11. For the last few months, we've been kind of camped on verse 32 in chapter 11, where the writer mentions six people but does not expand on the story of their lives. He just mentions their names Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel. And so we've been expanding on their life stories, currently looking at the life of Samuel. And when we finish with Samuel, then we'll go back to Hebrews 11 and begin to work our way through the remainder of the chapter. I've been hammering away for, uh, for several weeks, actually weeks upon weeks upon weeks, uh, at our definition of faith. And I'm sure you're getting it memorized by now, so I kind of shortened my review for the week but remember hebrews eleven six 6 says faith is the substance of things hoped for the evidence of things not seen and by it the elders obtained a good testimony and we're using three words to help us understand this definition confidence conviction and confirmation faith is not some mystical feeling of hopefulness faith is confidence in god It's resting in the promises of God, trusting God for things we can't see, accepting what God says even when we can't understand it all. And biblical faith is not based on how hard I try to believe or how emotional I may get when I pray. Biblical faith is always rooted in the character and in the promises of God. So faith is conviction to do what God says to do. We believe what God says is true, so we are committed to obey the Lord. Our conviction directs our behavior, and we do what we do because of what we believe. We all do that. We do what we do because of what we believe. So when we believe what God says, then we have the conviction to obey it. Faith brings brings conviction to us. As I said, we have that conviction to obey it, then faith brings confirmation. If you're walking by faith, you'll know that God approves because He'll make it known to you first through the Scripture and eventually through your circumstances. So confidence in God, the conviction to obey His Word, and the confirmation that brings us assurance, that is biblical faith. It's not abstract or mystical It's concrete, solid assurance because its foundation is the Word of God. Now, we're at the end of our list of six men from Hebrews 11.32, currently looking at Samuel's life. Following the leadership of Moses, then Joshua, there was a period of about 350 years when Israel was led by people who were called judges. They were military, civil, spiritual leaders who guided Israel. And of the six men listed in Hebrews 11.32, five of them were judges. Samuel was the last of the ruling judges and also became a nationally known prophet, which we saw last week. He was a great man of faith with a tremendous heart for God. And I intended to spend two Sundays originally looking at Samuel's life, looking for life events that illustrated his heart for God and his faith in God. But as I began to study 1 Samuel chapter 12 this past week, I was confronted with some fascinating theology that I believe we need to see and understand. In 1 Samuel 12, which will be the heart of what we're going to look at today, there are several character qualities that Samuel models for us. Godly character qualities that we should see in anyone who has a heart for God. And that's where I was originally headed in my message this week, but we're actually going to look at those things next week. We'll look at the the character qualities that Samuel exhibited that, that demonstrate his heart for God. But this Sunday, I want to share with you some interesting theological truths that are kind of brought to the forefront in this chapter. You know, of course, that theology is about God the nature of God, the character of God, etc. Uh, but Samuel was right in the middle of this event that reveals these truths about God. And he was, in fact, preaching these theological truths. This is meaty theology, not toast theology. It will give you something to chew on, and I trust something to rejoice in. Because we often speak about the sovereignty of God, that God is the ruler and the sustainer of the universe. That God, as our Creator, has the right to rule His universe. He made the world and everything in it, so He has the right to do what He wants to do with the world and with us. He is all-powerful. We use the term omnipotent. God is all-powerful, and as our all-powerful Creator, He has the right to exercise that power, however He may wish to do so. But we also see that God, in His sovereignty, is not cold and distant, just arbitrarily making rules just because He feels like it. God's actions as sovereign are always guided by His purposes. God always has a plan. He always has a purpose. There is eternal meaning in everything that He causes and in everything that He allows. And He puts it all together to bring eternal glory to His name. We also often speak of God's providence, meaning that God is working out all of the circumstances of life so that it meshes together in in accordance with his will. Nothing ever happens that surprises God or, or that ever throws his plan out of whack. He never has to go to plan B because human beings messed up his plan A. God's sovereignty and His providence are always at work in this world, both in the big picture and in our daily lives. The Apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians 1 that God is working all things according to the counsel of His will. The prophet Isaiah wrote in that fabulous chapter, chapter 46 of Isaiah, he said, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. A couple of verses later, he says, Indeed, I have spoken it, I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it, I will also do it. So you see, God predicts what God has planned, and what God has planned, he always performs. And as we look at this interesting circumstance in the life of Samuel, our specific thought this morning is that God is even sovereign over human sin. The the specific sinful acts of people cannot undo the purposes of God. In fact, in the incredible providence of God, the evil in this world actually ends up performing the divine will of God. Psalm 76, which is a psalm praising God for His righteous judgment, the the psalmist writes in verse 10, he said, God makes even the wrath of man to praise Him. So even when rebellious humans think that they are rising up against God and destroying what He's doing, God turns it around and He brings about exactly what He has planned to do originally anyway. Now as you ponder that, I want you to think about the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was wicked. It was twisted. It was cruel. It was unjust. And it was exactly what God planned. Down to the last detail. Not only was it exactly what God planned, it was exactly what man needed. So that his wicked, twisted, cruel, unjust sinfulness could be forgiven. You see, God's sovereignty and God's providence took the wrath of man, and he turned it around to praise him. And on the day of Pentecost, the apostle Peter preached to this crowd of thousands, and he said some very interesting things there in chapter 2 of Acts. He said to them, he said, Jesus was delivered to you by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, But then he turns right around in the next verse and says, but you took your lawless hands and you crucified him. But God raised him up and made him both Lord and Christ. So do you see that interesting theology there? It was in the plan of God for wicked men to unjustly kill Jesus so that he could be our Savior and the Lord of all. Man's sin cannot thwart the plan of God. God is sovereign even over man's sin. And we could go on and on and on, but we want to get to our passage today and see this very truth illustrated for us right here in the life of Samuel. Our story kind of begins in 1 Samuel chapter 8. If you'll look, I I, I told you 12 a moment ago, but let's begin in 1 Samuel chapter 8. And I want to give you kind of an overview of what's going on. 1 Samuel 8, I'm going to read the first seven verses. 1 Samuel 8, first seven verses. Now it came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of the firstborn was Joel and the name of his second Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba, but his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain, took bribes, and perverted justice. Very unfortunate. What a godly man of Samuel, but his sons never caught what he had. So verse 4, then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Look, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Heed the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. Unfortunately, Samuel's sons did not have the heart for God that Samuel had. They didn't walk in the ways of their father. They took bribes. They perverted justice. So the elders of Israel petitioned Samuel to anoint a king over them so they could be like the other nations around them. Samuel's broken hearted. He's upset. But the Lord the Lord tells him, give them what they want. He tells him to solemnly warn them in the next verses about what a king is going to take from them. But, but, but to go ahead and give them what they want. So over the next few verses there in chapter 8, Samuel sort of explains what a king is going to do. He says a king is going to draft your sons into his army. He said, a king is going to take your sons and make them work in his fields. A king is going to take your daughters and make them work in his palace. He's going to take a tenth of your crops and a tenth of your livestock. In other words, he's going to tax you. Old story. But look at verse 19 of this chapter, chapter 8. Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but we will have a king over us, so that we may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And Samuel heard all the words of the people, and he repeated them in the hearing of the Lord. So the Lord said to Samuel, Heed their voice and make them a king. And Samuel said to the men of Israel, Every man go to his city. So at the direction of God in the next chapter, Samuel anoints Saul as the first king of Israel. And in the chapter 11, in fact, right at the end of chapter 11, if you want to turn there, look at just the last couple of verses. Samuel has anointed Saul as king. They're about to actually have his coronation time. At the end of chapter 11 and verse 14, Samuel says to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. That's the name of a little community. There they made sacrifices of peace offerings before the Lord, and Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. So Samuel makes Saul the king and at his coronation ceremony that we just read about, Samuel gives this public address. We'll call it a sermon. It's basically what he does. He preaches to the nation of Israel as he turns over his ruling authority as a judge to King Saul. His civil authority is going to go to King Saul. Samuel still functioned in, in his role as a prophet and as a spiritual advisor to Saul, but Saul is now going to be the king in all civil matters. Next week, we'll look in real detail at Samuel's sermon. We're going to see all the character qualities that made him the incredible servant of the Lord that he was. But I want to focus our thoughts today on this issue of Israel wanting a king. And I want us to remember that God is sovereign even over human sin. Even though God never causes man to sin... James one thirteen is very clear about that. God cannot be tempted by evil, that verse says, nor does he himself tempt anyone. God never causes sin. But his sovereignty and his omnipotence and his providence will never allow his ultimate plan to be hindered or destroyed or knocked off track by sin. And I want to read just a portion of chapter 12, and I want to share with you five truths about the nature and character of God that we see in this circumstance. So chapter 12, I'll start to read in verse 12, go up to verse 22. This is the middle of Samuel's sermon. Now, when you saw that Nahash, king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us, when the Lord your God was your king. Now, therefore, here is the king whom you have chosen and whom you have desired. And take note, the Lord Lord has set a king over you. If you fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and do not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then both you and the king who reigns over you will continue following the Lord your God. However, if you do not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord... Then the hand of the Lord will be against you as it was against your father's. Now, therefore, stand and see this great thing which the Lord will do before your eyes. Is not today the wheat harvest? I will call to the Lord, and he will send thunder and rain, that you may perceive and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord, and asking a king for yourself. Of course, in the wheat harvest was a dry time of year, like we like to harvest or combine around here when you don't get rain. And so this is the the middle of the wheat harvest probably in their era early June late May or on into the month of June and Samuel says this is the wheat harvest it never rains but guess what I'm going to ask the Lord to send thunder and rain so you can see the great wickedness that you've done so verse 18 Samuel called to the Lord And the Lord sent thunder and rain that day and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel and all the people said to Samuel pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die for we have added to all our sins the evil of asking a king for ourselves. Then Samuel said to the people do not fear you have done all this wickedness yet do not turn aside from following the Lord but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside, for then you would go after empty things which cannot profit or deliver, for they are nothing. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you his people. Five truths about the nature and the character of God that we see in this circumstance. Number one God foresees our sinful choices. Now, you and I both know, if you know the Lord and you're familiar with the Scripture, you know that God is eternal. We've just said God is sovereign, His providence is working, He's all-powerful. God is also all-knowing, or omniscient, as we say. So God is eternal, and He is omniscient. He knows everything. So God foresees our sinful choices. He knows what we are going to do. It's like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Did God know they were going to sin? Yes, He absolutely did. He put them in the Garden anyway. He knew what they were going to do. It was all in the eternal plan of God, as the book of Revelation says, that Jesus Christ was the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So God knew Adam and Eve were going to sin. But, but He put them in the Garden of Eden and progressed with that anyway because it was the, ultimately the unfolding of God's plan. So we know that God is eternal. God is omniscient. God foresees our sinful choices. And what's fascinating is, if you were to go back and look, we won't take the time to do it today, but if you want to do some study on your own, go back and read Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 to 20. And you would see something very interesting. Moses, speaking for the Lord, says to Israel in Deuteronomy 17, he says, when you get to the land that I'm giving you, and you possess it and you dwell in it, and you decide that you want a king like all the other nations. I went, huh? God told Moses that 400 years before Samuel lived. God says, when you get to the land I'm giving you and possess it and dwell in, and you decide that you want a king like all the other nations, then make sure you pick a man that I choose for you from among your own brethren and not, and not a foreigner. He's not to multiply his horses or his wives or his wealth. He's to have a copy of my law in his possession so he can obey it, so his heart is not lifted up above his brethren. And Moses wrote that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit 400 years before the people asked Samuel For a king, so we can be like the other nations, just like God said they would. You see, God is eternal, God is omniscient, God foresees our sinful choices. If you were to read on into Deuteronomy chapter 28, Moses lists for the people the blessings of obedience and the curses of disobedience. And in his listings of the curses of disobedience, God prophetically mentions the Babylonian captivity and the siege of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar. Now, he doesn't call them by name, Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon, but he describes exactly what is going to happen because of Israel's disobedience. And you know what? From the time Moses wrote that in Deuteronomy 28 until the time that Nebuchadnezzar laid siege to to Jerusalem, that was 900 years later. God foresees our sinful choices. How can He not? He is eternal. He is omniscient. He is not bound by time. He doesn't have to wait for things to happen to figure out how it's going to play out. God is eternal and omniscient. He is omnipotent. He's sovereign. God foresees our sinful choices. Number two, God reminds us of our sin. Notice that Samuel plainly tells the people, he says, your sin, your wickedness is great in asking for a king. He said, I'm going to send you a sign just to demonstrate that to you. He said, I'm going to send you some rain and thunder in the middle of the wheat harvest so that you can perceive and know and see what your sin is. Now, why did they need to perceive what their sin was? Well, you know, we've said it many times, sin blinds us. Sin blinds us and it binds us. Sin always blinds us. It is so deceptive, as Jeremiah said, Jeremiah 17. The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked, as Jeremiah writes. So God is pointing out to the nation that they have sinful motives in asking for a king, and they get it. They realize that. You know, God does all kinds of interesting things to get our attention. It may not be thunder and rain during harvest at the word of an Old Testament prophet, But God does many interesting things to get our attention. It could be, uh, well, it could be a lot of things circumstantially that God is, is, is doing to get our attention and point things out to us. And I've always said it to the Lord and said to encourage others, may God help us to be alert to what God is doing and respond the way these folks did in verse 19 when they said, pray to the Lord that we may not die. We have added to all our sin the evil of asking a king for ourselves. They admitted what they had done. They recognized what they had done. And they, and they were pleading for God's mercy, saying, well, pray for us. God should wipe us out for this wickedness. Pray that He won't. See, God points out their sin. There's two other great truths. Actually, three. We'll get to the, number five here in a moment. But number three, God is faithful to His character. Samuel tells them that the Lord will not forsake them for His name's sake. In verse 22. The Lord will not forsake His people for His great name's sake. Because it has pleased the Lord to make you his people. Samuel tells them the Lord will not forsake them, not for their sake, not because of who they are, but because of who God is. God never fails to keep a promise. God never lies. God keeps his commitments. It pleased God to make them his people, and he is always going to be faithful to his character. We've quoted the verse to you many times through the course of this study in 2 Timothy 1.12 where the Apostle Paul says, I am not ashamed for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him against that day. We know that God, God is faithful to keep his commitments. He always does what he says he's going to do. The Apostle Peter wrote in 2 Peter 3 9, God is not slack concerning his promise, or not slow concerning his promise. 2 Peter 3 9. He says that because he, he, says, he says God will keep his promises. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 18 says it is impossible for God to lie. See, God is always faithful to his character. And as these people are pleading for God's forgiveness, Samuel says, Don't be afraid. God's not going to cast you away because He's going to be faithful to His character. He chose you for His name's sake. Which brings us to number four, that God shows mercy to rebellious sinners who repent. When I was reading through 1 Samuel 12, here I came to verse 20 and I had to kind of blink my eyes and look. He says, Samuel says to the people, Do not fear. You have done all this wickedness. I thought, Wait a minute, is is that a typo? Is that that a misprint? I mean, shouldn't it say, you better be scared to death after what you've done, buddy? But that's not what Samuel says. Do not fear, he says, you have done all this wickedness. Pretty incredible. He He says, don't turn aside from following the Lord. Don't quit. He says, everything else is empty. It can't deliver you. It doesn't profit anything. He says, serve the Lord with all your heart. What an amazing statement of the grace and mercy of God to rebellious sinners. They have repented and said, Lord, forgive us. We shouldn't have done this. We shouldn't have done this wicked thing. Don't kill us over this. says, don't be afraid. Yes, you've done wickedly. But he says, do what God wants you to do. He said, do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Don't chase empty things. It can never profit you. Just just give God your whole heart. And I thought what what an amazing statement of the grace of God. God's God's grace to us is unbelievable. The reason why it's so amazing is because it doesn't depend on us. If it depended on us, it wouldn't be very amazing. It would be downright scary. But God's grace depends on him. He's always faithful. To his character. He is faithful to who he is. As Psalm 100 tells us, the Lord is good and his mercy is everlasting. And this brings us to our fifth and final truth about God God's eternal plan will never be undone. God's eternal plan will never be undone. Now, think with me for a moment here about this king issue. Moses was not Israel's king. Joshua was not Israel's king. They were national leaders, that is true, but they did not function as kings. During the era of the judges, there was no king. But here in our story today, Israel wants a king, and God tells them they have sinned. It's a bad choice. God was their king. He took wonderful care of them. They should have just trusted him and left it that way. But you know what? God had foreseen their sinful choice, as we just saw. He had already made an eternal plan. And 70 years later, 70 years after this event, near the end of King David's reign, God comes to David and he tells David that his kingdom would be an everlasting kingdom. It's in 2 Samuel chapter 7, if you want to read that story sometime. God says to David, one day your throne will be established forever. And the Gospel of Luke in chapter 1, verse 32 and 33, applies that promise to the Lord Jesus Christ. It says there in, in Luke 1, 32 and 33, it says, The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And coming soon, Revelation 19 records that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to burst through the heavens riding a white horse. And his name is going to be called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he's going to judge and make war. And his eyes will be like a flame of fire. And he's going to be clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And his name will be called the Word of God. And he's going to strike the nations and tread out the the, 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 the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And it says, On his robe dipped in blood will be written the name King of Kings, And Lord of lords. And he's going to destroy the armies of the Antichrist. And he's going to set up his kingdom on this earth for a thousand years. Ruling from Jerusalem in fulfillment of prophecy. So in a fascinating, interesting, almost unbelievable way. The nation of Israel, 3,000 years ago, set that prophecy in motion when they asked for a king. I'll give you something to chew on on the way home. Now, does that mean God is the author of sin? Absolutely not. 1 John 1.5 says, God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. Well, I just read to you a moment ago, James 1.13, God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does He Himself tempt anyone. God is not the author of sin, but He is sovereign over sin. God's eternal plan will never be undone, either by our sin or anybody else's. And you know what? Even the most outrageous sins that we can hardly wrap our minds around can never nullify the purposes of God to glorify Himself and save His people. Say, what's all that mean for me? It means that when the days are dark and the future looks grim, don't be afraid. It means when breathtaking sorrow and heartbreaking circumstances come to us, serve the Lord with all your heart. When you are faced with threatening opposition, don't turn aside from following the Lord. When we fail and sometimes fail miserably, pray for mercy and fall on your face before our sovereign Savior. Pray for Christ-exalting strength in times of disaster. Pray for Christ-exalting courage in times of suffering. Because everything is under the providential control of our all-powerful, all-knowing, sovereign Savior. His purposes will always be accomplished. That's why He is worthy to be trusted. He is worthy to be, to, to be believed. And we just have to make sure that we have a true faith relationship to the King of kings and the Lord of lords who can forgive you and restore you and use you in His kingdom because our Almighty God is even sovereign over our sin and everybody else's. He brings everything to pass exactly as he wishes it to be, even when you and I blow it. I hope that's an encouragement to you, that the world does not rise and fall on us. God's plan is there. He is sovereign even over our sin. And even here in the nation of Israel, when they cried out, we want a king like the other nations. We want a king to judge over us. And God says, they've rejected my my kingship over them. And yet God had already foreseen all of that. And already planned that he was going to take Israel's king. And he was going to make one of David's descendants, the eternal king over Israel. The king of kings. And the Lord of Lords. All woven into that plan. Because God is sovereign even over our sin. Let's pray. Lord, it's very easy for us to fall into despair. We look at our lives. We see our blunders. We wrestle with our sins and we wonder Lord can you still use me Lord have I what have I messed up have I destroyed what you want and Lord even this very week we heard some terrible horrifying news about an internationally known wonderful speaker whom I've had great respect for who we see even after he has passed away Things come to light that are absolutely horrifying and outrageous to try to wrap our minds around. And yet we know, Lord, that, that you are sovereign even over our sin. And that your eternal purposes will always come to pass. Your will will always be done even though you take sinful human beings and you take all of our blunders and as the psalmist says, you take the wrath of man even and you turn it around to praise you. Lord, we're so thankful to belong to a God who is so powerful that nothing he says can be messed up. Nothing that you've promised can ever be undone, even by us. Because you are sovereign even over our sin may we lord rejoice in your goodness and your grace and your mercy and your wisdom and your infinite knowledge and all of the things that make you who you are and may we lord bow in submission and awe as we realize that in the great mercy and wisdom of god you are sovereign over our sin in jesus name we pray amen